always got utter belief in it. And somehow she found the acceleration. Welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. What a show we have for you today. We had the LA Grand Prix and Rabat Diamond League over the weekend. What went right? What went wrong? And who needs to worry as the 2023 outdoor track season begins to heat up? Jakob Ingebrigtsen held off Yared Nagus and Rabat. Should he be worried? Is he no longer improving? We'll discuss that. Caitlin Tui and Britton Wilson are set for some epic NCAA doubles in Austin, Texas next week. We'll briefly recap the NCAA regionals. And does the full start rule need to be changed or can nothing be done? Do officials just truly hate track and field athletes? We'll talk about that as well. Plus, at the end of the show, we'll get you ready for Friday's Diamond League in Florence, where Grant Fisher will take on a stacked 5K field led by Olympic champion, Joshua Cheptegei. This is Jonathan Gold. I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, the co-founders of Let'sRun.com, Robert and Weldon Johnson. Robert, do you have a lot of rage? I think I, I wrote what I thought was a fairly tame intro, and then you come back and edit it, and you've got complaining about Jakob Ingebrigtsen not improving anymore. You're saying officials hate track and field athletes. I don't know if the, either of those things are true, but... I had to read them. They were on the prompter in front of me. So are you mad? Is there something you want to vent about today? I guess so. I mean, I, I'm just trying to make a boring sport interesting one day at a time. We did a great show. Where we recapped the meet right after it ended for the Supporters Club on Sunday. So I didn't want to repeat the show. I just wanted to get some interesting topics. But John, look, don't, don't, don't turn this on me. You're the one that I'm worried about. How are you doing? I mean, yesterday was a nationwide holiday in the United States, Memorial Day, and I'm sorry, I think your Boston Celtics, they weren't supposed to take a vacation day themselves and stop playing good basketball and create a memorial to a season that ended prematurely. I mean, how are you feeling? John? I, I'm not even a Boston Celtics fan, but I wanted them to win. I couldn't even watch the meet win the game. I just, I saw they were down by 10 points. I'm like, I'm not watching that. Yeah, it wasn't fun. I expected them to win. I think the entire city of Boston expected them to win. It was a great crowd. Uh, some of the players showed up. Derek White was good, but it was a disappointing performance. I the pro the thing for me is Robert. You know me. Who are the two teams I care about more than anyone else? Oh, teams! I thought you were gonna. I was gonna say Caitlin Tui, and no, oh, just kidding. Um, the New England Patriots and I—I I, I don't even know the name. Brighton and Hoval, Brighton and Hovalbian, or Brighton Hovalbian. There we go. You nailed it. Brighton and Hovalbian and the New England Patriots. So when one of those teams loses a heartbreaker, I'm really upset. The Celtics. I like the Celtics. I follow them in the regular season a little bit. I watch all the playoff games, but I'm not a true fan. I would say in the same way I would be of the Patriots and Brighton. So. It's disappointing, but Brighton also wrapped up the most successful season in 122-year history. We're going to the Europa League. We finished miles ahead of Chelsea, the team that rated our roster and coaching staff this year, and miles ahead of Crystal Palace, which one of the other people on this podcast supports. So I'm trying to focus on the positives of a great Brighton season, sixth in the Premier League, and not so much on the Celtics becoming the second 
Boston team to blow a game seven on their home in their home arena to an eight seed from Miami in the span of a month. Well, well, then I, I was hoping you would pop up and take offense to the Crystal Palace dig, but maybe you just want to talk about track and field since we've clearly surpassed the team that you root for. We too finished ahead of Chelsea, John. So successful season. Thousand to one odds for next year's Premier League season. I already put down a bet. Maybe I should up the bet. And this won't be a repeat of the podcast on Sunday. We also have intern Alex here. He's very popular. There's already a voicemail about intern Alex. And if you want to leave a voicemail for the show, call 1-844-LET'S-RUN. We need more voicemails. People, or you can text. Robert, I'm not sure if you actually ever text, checks the text, but you can text that number 1-844-LET'S-RUN. But Alex, welcome. We'll have the intern segment of the week later. All right, let's take a look at some of the stuff that happened over the weekend. As Weldon said, if you are either a diehard fan watching live or a Let's Run.com Supporters Club member, you listened to our Rabat Diamond League breakdown that we released right after the meet on Sunday. So we talked a lot about the storylines of the big races, the terrific men's 1500, where Jakob Nagus, sorry, Jakob Nagus, Yard Nagus could not quite run down Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the home straight. That was a lot of fun. But let's talk about some of the other stuff that we didn't touch on as much. Because we had the LA Grand Prix, and we, we did talk about some of the big races, but there were some things we didn't address from that meet that I feel like are worthy of attention. And one of them was the 5K on Friday night. There are a couple things that stood out to me from that race. One was Abdelhamid Noor looked sensational. He hasn't really run very much this year. Um, I think he was sick during the winter. So while his you know, teammates out in Flagstaff, like Woody Kincaid and Luis Grijalva, were running really fast indoors, we didn't hear anything from Noor, who made the Worlds team last year. This race, he falls on the very first lap, still comes back, runs a personal best 13.05, hits the world standard, wins the race easily by three seconds. I was incredibly impressed by that. But then at the same time, I'm looking at the people we've got in this event right now in the United States. Paul Chalimo just ran a really nice race in London. Grant Fisher is the American record holder. Joe Klecker ran 12.54 indoors. Woody Kincaid broke the American record indoors. That's a lot of guys. And then you've got Emmanuel Bohr, who did not run as well in this meet, but still ran 13.10. You've got Morgan Beetlescombe starting to improve, 13.08 for third place. A lot of good guys in this men's 5K right now. Do you... Do you guys, right now, if you had to pick a team, is Abdi Noor on your team? John, before I answer that question, can you tell me what the last lap split was? I hear everyone saying it was super impressive, but it was past my bedtime on Friday night when, you know, you can look great in a 13.05 race. It's not the same thing as looking great in a 12.55 race, but Noor is super talented. Like, I was just before we started this show on the message board arguing with what's the guy's name? Coavet Ovet, who doesn't think East Africans are genetically gifted at running. He just thinks they're all an EPO. And he points out that no Kenyan had broken two ten in the marathon before EPO. So I've been, I've been arguing with him. Like you're such a moron if you don't think that. And part of my, you know, belief is that is like, look at Yared Nagus. Look at Abdi Noor. <laughs> 
So East African descent that's born in America is still kicking ass. Abdihamid Noor wasn't born in the United States, just for record. I'm going to say no before you even give me the split. No. He, look, Fisher's on the team, right? 100%. Everybody agree right now? Nod your head yes. Grant Fisher's on the team. I won't say 100%, but he's like 95% for me. Okay. But I'm most confident of anyone in the U.S., he's on the team, ahead of everybody else. Yes. And then uh, Woody Kincaid, uh, I'm a little bit – his kick is unreal. He ran what? 1251, 1252 indoors. I'm a little bit worried that he pulled out of this race. I had heard that he was trying to get into Florence, couldn't get into the race. was going to run us domestically. So then when he didn't run in this domestic race, I figured, Oh, he must've gotten into Florence. I just checked the foreign start list. Somehow Joe Klecker's on the start list, but Woody Kincaid can't get in. That's ridiculous. Woody Kincaid deserves it to be on the Florence list way over Joe Klecker. Who's their agents? Whoever's agent they have, this is a flex move to get Klecker in over Kincaid if they don't have the same agent. Yeah, Klecker's agent's Ray Flynn. Kincaid's is Dan Lilo. Okay, I, well that, that proves you right there. That, the, Ray Flynn has more power in the sport than, than Dan Lilo, if that's the case. Because well, hold, the, let, let's, let's not count any chickens before we hatch here, get the facts of the situation. Maybe Kincaid does get into the meat, but yes, look. Kincaid made the 5K team last year. Klecker did not, though he didn't compete at it. They raced two times this year. Indoors, Kincaid beat Klecker. Outdoors in the 10K, Kincaid beat Klecker. Clearly, Kincaid deserves to be in there over Klecker. But maybe they both get in, Robert. It's only Tuesday. The race is Friday. These do, these things do change at the last minute. I don't have a last lap slip for Noor. Uh, can't see one on the timing site. But, I mean, he won the race by three seconds. I... Uh, he got the standard, you know, he did, he did exactly what he needed to do in this race. I think I would have him on this team partially because Klecker and Kincaid are both going to be doubling back from the 10 K most likely. I think if I had the team, if I had to pick the team lot, the thing is like, do I leave off Chalimo? Like a Paul Chalimo to his peak is going to beat Abdinur in a 5k. There's no doubt about that, but is he, back to that level. I think if I had to go with a team right now, I'm saying Fisher, Kincaid, and Chalimo, the same as the Olympic team from last year. But I think Abdino is really good. Would you guys rather have the 18th ranked 5,000 meter runner in your field or the 21, 21st ranked 5,000 meter runner in your field if you're the Florence meet? Well, no, well, I think that's part of it. I'm assuming Klecker's ranked 18th. Correct. Yeah, so people get just ignore sort of actual results of importance this year and just look, oh, this guy has a higher world ranking than that guy, therefore they get them in. And I guess the world rankings can be helpful, but I feel like being, if you're a slave to them, you can get a situation like this. Right, but at some point you need some objective way to put people in, and I think that's supposed to be the world rankings. Like in tennis, if there's... You know, only so many spots left. I'm sure there's some system in place. Oh, we go off the world ranking or whatever it is. So the rankings need to better accurately reflect what's going on. But also, you don't want them just to reflect what happened in the last race. Correct. And I, I heard the guys on the Coffee Cup Pump Cup has they're really ranting about it's got to be objective and blah, blah, blah. I kind of like some of the subjectivity. I, I think the meat director should be, uh, I, I see both sides to it. But 
and I can actually make the argument why Ken K- why Klecker in a rabbited race, like what his problem is, he falls off and then he he has a big kick. But in a rabbit's race that fast, he may fall off and not be in it for the kick. Whereas Klecker might just be able to hang on to the back of the pack a little bit better. But anyways, is he going to make the team for Noor? God, that's just I would say no though. I would put Fisher, Kincaid, and Chalimo ahead of Noor, but. That's, I mean, that's what's great. Someone's going to miss out. Someone very good. Okay, are we guys? I was full of praise for Paul Chalimo saying he's back. I think I like being a skeptic a little less so than Robert. But are we giving Chalimo too much credit now for the 27-12? I don't think so. I mean, this is a guy who historically has not been a 10K runner. So the fact that he is now running pretty fast mostly by himself in the second half in an event that hasn't historically been his best. I mean, I'm kind of on the optimistic side saying, wow, if he's this good at 10K, think how good he could be at 5K. But maybe it's possible he's rejigged his training a little bit more. He's been focused more on the 10K and he's not as good as the 5K. But I'm kind of giving him, this is a show, one, he's clearly in good shape. 10K fitness usually isn't that different from 5K fitness. And add in his track record? No, I think we're giving him the appropriate amount of credit and respect. As someone who has been accused of not giving him respect in the past, I think 27-12 shows he's fit enough to contend. Now, he previously run 27-43, but that was 2019. Bad weather, no pacing lights, no super shoes. They had super shoes in 2019. Does Kiprum actually have a super spike? He wasn't in the Kiprum super spike. That's the new shoe brand he runs for. If you guys have never heard of Kiprum. I'm just saying we could be putting this Chalimo bandwagon too far out there. Very encouraging run. John, if I have to pick the team right now, the way I see it, I'm putting Grant Fisher on it. So that means it's two guys for four spots. Four guys for two spots. What did I say? You said two guys for four spots. Thank you, sir. So, Clucker, Kincaid, Nur, and Chalimo for two spots. I want to see recent results, you know, heading into USA's. This was a good, but this was a pretty good recent result for Nur. And this is great, though. This is great. When you got American guys running. You know, we're debating whether, I mean, King Clacker were acting like he was chopped liver indoors. He ran 12.54 indoors. And we're sort of, um, we're all kind of like, maybe. Who's calling him chopped liver? 12, I mean, 12.54 is exceptional, but in 2023, it's not enough to guarantee you a spot in the U.S. team. We've got Grant Fisher who's run 12.46, and we've got Woody Kincaid who's run 12.51. And then you've got a two-time Olympic medalist. So... And Klecker's going to be doubling back. Klecker and Kincaid, most likely, and Fisher. I think all three of them are probably going to be doubling back from 10K, which they will have two days of rest in between, but that's not an insignificant thing, especially if that 10K turns out to be a real battle. Yeah, Nur and Chilima will be hungry and fresh. And I think those three guys will all make the 10K team. So I'm going to change, John. I'm going to go... Near Chalimo Fisher. Not in that order. 
Wow, no Kincaid in the 5K. Okay. I like that logic. All right, John, get it out. Talk about the guy that was well behind, almost 30 seconds behind, but you're thrilled about. Uh, this guy, he was 18th. He got totally smoked in the race. Lex Young, 1334. I mean, Robert, I don't understand. How are you not excited about this? This is a high, the 18 year old high schooler. 1334, high school record for Lex Young. This record had stood for almost 20 years when Connor Burns broke it a couple weeks ago, the high school 5,000-meter record. It was 1337 by Galen Rupp. Connor Burns also ran 1337 and lowered it, and now Lex Young has run 1334 and taken it even lower. It's pretty exciting to me. I know they have super shoes, and Galen Rupp didn't, but what, what has got you down about this? This is a great run by Lex Young. Down? I'm not sure if that's the right word, but when you break a three-week-old record, I, I don't think it's some monumental accomplishment. And I, I said this on the forum. I, I also think that – I don't know, man. I mean, I, it's just a different era. They don't even bother to do their state meet anymore. Like, let's just run pro meets, whatever. I, I, I was going to institute – I was debating instituting a new rule. I don't want to hear the word Newberry Park, Lex Young, Leo Young, or Aaron or Colin Solomon ever mentioned on this podcast again, but not going to quite go that go that far. But, I mean, I, I don't remember John going nuts over Kita Sato of Japan when he ran 13.22 last year or two years Because ago. he's Japanese. This is a, How many Japanese listeners do we have, Robert? It's just the xenophobia. You know, this is supposed to be a multi- It's not young- xenophobia. I mean, do you want to have a podcast dedicated to Japanese running? You should probably learn Japanese. Most of our listeners care about Lex and Leo Lung. Robert just doesn't want to talk about things that are popular. These are like two of the most popular high school runners in history. And you just want to alienate any American listener under the age of 20 by refusing to talk about them on a podcast. So good luck with that strategy. Yeah, what is this deal? Because, John... We flew you out to Australia. He was all into them. Just he just loves to be different. It's sickening and disgusting. <laughs> hey, no, it's sickening and disgusting. It's just a bad strategy when you're trying to put out a running podcast and you're ignoring one of the most popular runners in America. I, I should not be hating on my fellow identical twin, but and, and to their credit, although it kind of bothers me, but I'm starting to sound old, but. One of my favorite threads, and by the way, if you're not checking out the Let's Run.com forum, go to Let's Run.com slash forum each and every day. There's some really great threads. Like when I wasn't watching the basketball game last night, I was on the forum. One of the threads was called The Myth of the Casual Fan in Track and Field. And I just totally agree with the whole theory that like you should not be dumbing down the sport. You, you should be just promoting it to the people who are actually watching it. But there was one thing that the, the Youngs, Leo and Lex, have their own YouTube channel. And... I don't know. Like this guy, Matt Hatter on page three said, I was at the LA Grand Prix over the weekend. And yes, it was half field stands. And I suspect most were hardcore track fans. But one thing stood out. And that was the enormous crowd that was there to see Lex Young run. I think it was some Newbury Park high schoolers who made the trip. Though I suspect many are fans of their YouTube channel. Overall, the crowd was stoic and nonplussed. Though when Lex ran, the place suddenly came alive. You could feel the excitement. Afterwards, mobs of people waiting for his autograph or to get a selfie. Good for the sport. YouTube and social media in general give these runners more recognition. Hoping the next generation turns pro. 
they bring along a newer and bigger fan base. So that was good to see. But the reason why I, I don't want their name mentioned is very simple. Very simple. We have a guy who is 48 days younger than the Young Twins. 18 years, 43 days. Like the Young Twins, he was not born in Africa. But this young man is better than all the Young Twins and all of the Solomon brothers put together. Solomon brothers, Noah. He has PBs of 146.3 for 800. The fastest any Solomon has run, I think, is 146.99. for 1500. 748.25 for 20. 3,000. And just this weekend ran 1323.01. We are talking about double European under 18 champion Niels Laros of the Netherlands. He'd been talked about on the message boards a little bit. I looked him up. I watched him run. I was like, this guy's the real deal. Magnificent, beautiful runner. I'm going to forsake my own country and go all in on him. Now, part of it is like, I'm kind of against the professionalization of the high school scene. Loros does fail that test because apparently he's been training in Flagstaff all winter. Didn't go to World Junior Cross, which also upsets me. But this, have you guys seen this guy run, man? I haven't seen him race, but he is incredible. And I should have known. There's nothing Robert loves more than an obscure national record. And when that obscure national record is actually faster than the American high school records, he's going to go gaga. So... Niels Laros, certainly worthy of attention. I mean, it doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the Young Brothers just because there's some phenom in the Netherlands who's even faster. But it is actually ridiculous, those times you read off, Robert, because 146.3, that would be the high school 800-meter record in the United States. And he ran that last year in what would have been his junior year. I don't know if he's still going to high school or what, but he would have been the age of a high school junior. 748, that's way faster than the U.S. high school record in the 3K. And he also ran that in what would have been his junior year. And now you've got 1323, which as we see is 11 seconds faster than the U.S. high school record in the 5K. So yeah, he's a humongous talent. It's really exciting for the sport. I can't wait to see what he continues to do. Because, yeah, if you, I mean, 146, that's just, how many people in history, like legitimately 18 years old, have run 146 for 800 and 1323 for 5K? That, that's in really super range. By the way, there was an 18 year old Jagandan that ran 1315 in the same race, supposedly this weekend, but don't know much about him. Right. I mean, we've got like Emmanuel Wang Yunyi is 18 years old officially, and he's winning Diamond Leagues and running 143. But I don't know. Is it, I mean, is it xenophobic that we just ignore? Like, Robert, you're talking about these guys. Why aren't we talking about the eight, 17 and 18 year old Ethiopians and Kenyans who are running really fast in the Diamond League circuit? I think our average listener can relate more being born in the Netherlands and they can be bo- being born and raised in Africa. That's just... What? Wow, and I would say our average listener could actually relate even more to people who are born and raised in the United States and competing in those events. And then maybe we should talk about the high school kids like Leo or Lex Young who are running fast, but call me crazy. 
I'm just excited because I didn't get on the Ingebrigtsen bandwagon when he was 16, 17, 18. If we got another Ingebrigtsen coming up, keep the content. There are so many good young guys nowadays. Keep the, you know, I guess we shouldn't be worried that there's going to be track and field, that there's going to be a 20 year gap of track and field phenoms. I mean, back in the day, we used to have Jim Ryan, right? And Gary Lindgren, these like Western Americans who ran so fast at an early age. And then it took, what, 50 years? And you're like, how did they do it? They're like, oh, it was a different era. And I think, again, we're seeing now it's possible. For the longest time, you saw Ugandans or Kenyans, and there's some, the easy way to dismiss it was like, oh, they're older than they say they are. But I, obviously, like Jim Ryan and Gary Lindgren weren't like Jerry it. Lindgren, Jerry Lindgren. But the difference between those Jerry Lindgren and Jim Ryan and the current crop of phenoms. Jerry Linger and Jim Ryan were among the best runners in the entire world when they were 18 or 19 years old. That's not the case for someone like Niels Laros or for Leo or Lex Young or Aaron Solomon or Colin Solomon, anything like that. Like Ryan was setting a mile world record at the age of 19. You know? So there is a little bit of a difference between those phenoms and that they're not the absolute, absolute best in the world, but they're still running incredibly fast. True. But also back then, John, you didn't have a ton of African talent. A lot of people were done with the sport at age 25. It was just a different era. Right. But I mean, it is, it is funny because like Hobbs Kessler, he ran his 332 uh, in LA, which we discussed in more detail on the Sunday podcast. And that is the fastest time by an American run on American soil in the 1500 meters. But then I had, you know, some people in my Twitter Ever? feed responding. Yes, it's the fastest because, I mean, how many really elite 1500s do we see in the United States every year? Probably the best middle distance race every year is either the Wanamaker Mile or the Bowman Mile. And those are both mile races. So, yeah, that's the situation. But the crazy thing is some people are pointing out, it's like, okay, yes, that is the fastest ever. But don't forget that Jim Ryan, back in 1967, just after his 20th birthday, ran 333.1 on a Cinder track in Los Angeles. He broke the world record by 2.5 seconds. So... That was 1967. Yes, it was a second slower or half a second slower than what Hobbs Kessler ran, but Jim Ryan was freaking incredible, man. Breaking the world record by two and a half seconds in the 1500 at age 20, it's just nuts. Ryan was amazing, no doubt, but it was a great, great weekend if you're a US 1500 meter fan. I mean, you had Kessler and Tier run 332 in LA, and then you had Nagus run 333.01 or something like that in Rabat, finishing second behind the Olympic champion. And you had a great shot about that, John. It's the, it's the first time that an American has finished second in a Diamond League 1500 since... July 2015, Matthew Centrowitz. And the other stat, we had three Americans run faster for 1500 meters this weekend than we did in all of 2022. Yari Nagus was the U.S. leader last year at 333 mid. 
this weekend alone, we had Nagus 33302 and then Hawkering, sorry, Kessler and Tier at 332. So very promising, certainly an upgrade from last season. And really the only thing that's a bummer is that Cole Hawker is hasn't raced since January and there are some doubts about whether he's going to race. He pulled out of the LA Grand Prix. I saw he's listed at the Portland Track Festival as being entered, which is this upcoming weekend, but I'm, I don't know. I'm not If he just pulled out of LA, I'm not that optimistic he'll race this weekend, so we'll see. But the other thing from LA, you've got Matthew Centuritz running 336 on the comeback trail. That was his best race since the 2021 Olympics, so we said the 5K is great. I think the 1500 is going to be great at the domestic level this year as well. But just the excitement, the drama of thinking, okay, what if all five of these guys are actually in shape, in form next year, throwing at Craig Ingalls, and then a lot of them are going to go home devastated. And that's what's great for the sport. We've got to stop figuring out ways to give countries extra. Sp- I guess the, the Ethiopian is in the, the Ethiopian trials aren't a spectator friendly meet, but in America, you know, it, it, it's awesome. And you know, I, what's, you're talking about the best time, though, in years. I mean, the shoes, you know, most people think they're worth two or three seconds, although we haven't seen, the, like, the 328s become 325s at the very top of the sport, which is the one thing that's hard to understand. You know, some people think, oh, it helps you more if you're not the very best in the best. But Kessler's time converts to 349.70 in the mile, which is, you know, still good, obviously. But after these races were over, there was, like, a fascinating thread on let's run. I mean, Inga Britson wins the race in Rabat. And then there's a big thread saying there's an elephant in the room that no one's talking about. Did you guys see this thread? I saw it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Robert, can you explain what this guy's argument is? How the guy who just looked fantastic and burned the last 226 one, he's not improving because he didn't run a personal best. The elephant in the room is that Jakob Ingebrigtsen, this guy's theory is that he's not improving and he's not setting PRs. This is a slower seasonal opener for him and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, he's been training at an elite level. We've already seen the best of Ingebrigtsen, et cetera. And, you know, the idea that if you do train, you know, heavy volume at an earlier age, it's like, when is your peak going to come? You know, it would make sense that you you would peak earlier than, than other people, but what I liked about this thread was a post by, I think it was Peach Pit. This might be my message board post of the week. So far, I think Ingebrigtsen's peak was the 2021 Olympics. It's pretty clear he could have run 327 that day if he kept pushing through the line. And I think that's a great point. I don't know why that means he's done improving, though. Just look at Hebs Kessler. Kessler, his 1,500-meter peak was 2021 up until two days ago. For one year, there wasn't any clear improvement, but that doesn't mean you'll never improve again. Plus, with Jakob, does anyone actually think the 1,500 is going to be his best event? He doesn't, I don't, and anyone paying attention probably doesn't think so either. I think after 2024, he'll start focusing on the 5 and 10K more, and he'll probably be the best guy there for a decade or so. The last 5K, 10K guy to have a 328 PB was Farah. And Jakob could very well end up better. He's run faster than Farah's lifetime best at everything below 10K. An amazing post until he added, you are dumb to the other poster. Don't, no, no reason for the vitriol there at the end. But 
that that just got me super excited. Like, what if Jakob? I mean, I love him in the fifteen hundred, not having the great speed. Like, is he going to lose? Can he win from the front? But what if he ends up being kind of like a Ryan Hall or an Elliot Kipchoge in the sense of they were in the wrong event for a long time. Like Kipchoge was amazing at the five k, really good, won one world, world title, but his event was clearly the marathon. And Ryan Hall was winning an NCAA title right in the 5,000. Tr even tried to run the 1,500 in high school. His event was also the marathon. Jakob wins an Olympic title in the 1,500. But what if he's really a 10K runner? I mean, my God, like, mind blown. And his lactate threshold's off the charts. I think he's unbeatable at 5,000. So is he improving still? I, I just looked it up. I mean, he ran 1248, which was a huge PP. So he was improving a lot in the 5,000 last year. Let's wait till the year's over. He just said after the race, check it out on our YouTube channel, that running PB is a big priority for him this year, and he thinks he's on his way to doing that. So I agree. Just because he didn't run a PB last year doesn't mean that he's done improving. Yeah, I think it's nonsense that he's done improving. And if I had to bet, I would say his five his 1,500 PB will be faster than what it is right now, 328, 32, at the end of his career. But you got to look at it this way. Like, if you're measuring improvement strictly by personal bests, that's not always the best way to gauge someone's fitness improving. Because how did he set that personal best? It was an Olympic final, and he had a 328 guy, Timothy Chariot, to draft off for most of the final two laps. So that's, okay, he did have two rounds of prelims in his legs, but other than that, that's almost exactly what you would want to run fastest possible time. So yeah, of course he ran really fast in that race, but... I think he could run faster this year. Could run faster in two weeks in Oslo. He's running 1,500. He said in the press conference before Rabat, the world record isn't something he's targeting right now. I don't think he thinks he's in that kind of shape, but he does sound like he thinks he's in personal best shape. And they're going to have wave lights. They'll have pacing there. So his PB could go down there. But also, did this guy watch Rabat? Did he watch the final 200 meters? where he just accelerated away coming off the final turn and dropped a 26-1? When was the last time we've seen him have that kind of speed? Like To me, he added another tool to his toolkit in that not only can he still run fast, but he's now going acceleration that I can't really remember him seeing seeing from him. So to me, he's already better. It seemed like that to me, but I, before I mouth up, I would like to see the splits, like the closing 200s of every race that he's done in the last three years. Right, right, yeah. Maybe we should get the intern on that. But the, 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 because... I, I, and in some ways, I was thinking, okay, not a lot's changed from last year. The difference is Nagus is there. But last year, around this time of the year, pre-classic, they ran the mile. Jakob beat Ali Hoare by 0.89 of a second. This year, Ali Hoare, Diamond League opener, was 0.80 of a second behind Jakob. So it's basically the same. The difference is Nagus is only 0.43 there. He's in between. And, you know... The time wasn't great this weekend for 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 Jakob. Three thirty two for him is not amazing, but it wasn't great at pre last year. It was three forty nine. Then two or three weeks later, he runs three forty six. Well, we'll see what happens in two or three weeks later in Oslo when he runs. In between, by the way, I think next week he's going to go for the two mile world record in Paris. Yeah. Well, the other thing about Jakob, I had people in the comments when I posted on Twitter, it's like, hey, that was a great race for race for Nagus. You know, if he's on his shoulder in Oslo, maybe we could see something really exciting over the last 200. And they're like, did you see how easy Jakob looked? I mean, I will say this. 
he ran he closed in 26-1, but it probably could have been sub 25, sorry, sub 26 if he hadn't been looking over his shoulder and just he just seemed to be okay, actually maybe I should take that back a little bit because we always I think we always overestimate how much someone could take time off when they're kind of cruising it in, they're still running fast, but he looked under control that last 200. Uh, even though he's accelerating. And maybe that's just because Jakob always looks under control, no matter what pace he's running. But to me, it did look like he might have had an extra move in the tank if Nagus came up on his shoulder. So that, to me, is I'm going to be excited to see uh, if Yar if Yard's there with 200 to go in Oslo. Does Jakob have something even greater uh, in the tank over that last 200? I don't think I don't know if Nagus will be though because if if Jakob's trying to run like three twenty seven in Oslo, do you think Nagus is strong enough to be on his shoulder at two hundred meters to go at three twenty seven pace? Three twenty seven, probably not. John is the answer, but as we pointed out in the recap, pointed out in the Supporters Club podcasts, Jakob needed to go. What is it? Twenty six sixteen. The last two hundred. Yeah, because Yard Nagus ran twenty six twelve. Now you know this is off of chip technology or something. So, but essentially 0.04 faster. Essentially, they ran the same final two hundred meters. Yard ran very well this last two hundred. He just can't spot Jakob that much space. The question is, in a super rabbited race. Can he still be there? I mean, this was a very good run by Yard Nagus in my book. I don't care that Hobbs Kessler ran a second faster in LA, a completely different race. I think he's going to like his chances in two weeks or like another bite at the apple. And, but also related to this, oh, Jakob's not improving. It's complete BS. In three weeks, all of his PBs could be quicker. I, you know, in two weeks, he's running Paris. What did we get here uh, yesterday, John? Meeting to Paris. Yaga Bingo sent to hunt down the world record. Huge press release. They've got the wavelength technologies going after Coleman's 7.58. Only time ever someone's broken eight minutes for two miles outdoors. And the Dream Mile is a Dream 1500 this year in Oslo. I think that's got to only be for one reason, right? Yeah, well, he wants to run, improve his PB. And I, 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 I thought it would be a world record attempt. That's what people have been hyping it up to get as. But what he said in Rabat, he was very clear about what he was saying. He didn't think he's in 325 shape right now, but he does think he might be able to run a PB. So I think he wants to run a 50. He already got a 346 mile last year. He ran very fast there. I think he wants to lower his 1500 PB, and that's why it's a 1500 in Oslo. The other thing, I did enjoy this. Paris press release because they're really excited about this. And they're trying to hype up the thing. And just some of these lines really amused me. It said in part in Paris, Jakob, as he's known by his fellow competitors, it's like, well, yeah, most of these guys are known as by their first name to their competitors. <laughs> or at 22 with his tattoos, his sturdy character and his already substantial track record, it'll feel as if a rock star has arrived in Paris on June 9th for an exclusive show. I mean, I like it. These people, they're excited about. They go to one of the best runners in the world, headlining that field, going after a world record. I'm glad they're hyping it up. It's good for the sport. One last thing about this Jakob race. Like, 
looking over his shoulder, I think he told our boots on the ground. By the way, thanks to Guillaume Laurent of ATHLE.CH. I wish I could say it properly for being our boots on the ground. Check out their website. Swiss Let's Run. I know, the Swiss Let's Run. But I don't know. He asked him about why were you looking over your shoulder? To me, it was like, John, you sounded, seemed to think it was because he was like so dominant. To me, I'm like, why are you you're looking over your shoulder? Because you're worried someone's going to catch you. But then I looked at the Olympic replay, and he did the same thing there. But he was obviously tired after he passed Cheria. I mean, I guess it's natural to make sure you have it in the bag. But I, I don't like him looking over his shoulder. To me, that doesn't mean that he's got a ton left in the tank. He looked over his shoulder three or four times down the home stretch. I'll play the clip of Jakob responding to why did you look left? Why did you look right? Surprised that they're so far behind. But uh, a, good, a good race. Uh, I think it's uh, for most of us, it was just to get a, a good experience. And now we're just uh, working towards the next, next race. So. Uh, it's good to meet a lot of good runners already uh, in this race, and hopefully we'll uh, run faster in next races. Surprised that they were so far behind. Jakob made it sound like this was just a normal little race for him. Well, it was. Have you watched his other Diamond Leagues? Well, then, this is he usually wins. Uh, fifth straight Diamond League, 1,500 mile. His key closed faster than before, but like Robert was reading earlier, the gaps between him and Hall were pretty much the same. He beat Nagus by half a second. I think with all the hype, he was just like, okay, Nagus was never within three meters of me in this race. So, But I think Yara Nagus, he also said in his post-race interview that he made a mistake letting that gap form and he learned moving forward not to do that. So I, I thought it was pretty much what I expected for here for both guys. But it doesn't. if you think about it logically, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Here's Jakob, I'm the greatest, I'm going to be the greatest distance runner ever, blah, blah, blah. But then he's surprised someone's not closer than 0.43 of a second behind him. I mean, I don't remember him ever winning a race at the line by like one or two meters. So, yeah. Good point, Robert. He doth protest too much. Mm-hmm. You don't tell him surprised they're behind unless you expected somebody to be there. This was not a normal race for Jakob. Mm-hmm. He's admitted to seeing clips from this podcast. Maybe, I mean, John, where does most mm-hmm. of distance running media come outside of Norway? It comes in the English press. He's seen this on Let's Run. People hype. It's on Let's Run, the forums. That's the only place people talk about 1,500 meter running. I assume he's seen some of the hype about Yard, and this was more than a normal race for him. Well, the hype was merited, but we also, I picked Jakob to win this race because he's the, the guy to beat in this event. I know he's not the world champion, but he's the standard. He's very hard to beat in Diamond Leagues, and he showed why. So, I think both men can come away from this race pretty pleased with their result. I also think it's not like this is just Yard versus Jakob. I mean, we've got Jake Whiteman. He's been behind with a few injuries, I think, earlier this year, but he's still around. You've still got Josh Kerr. You've got Neil Gawley's coming on strong. He hasn't really gotten to that. I mean, he was silver indoors, but if you're one of the top Brits, whoever wins the British Championship is going to be a challenger. And you've got Katir, you've got Ali Hoare, who Robert continues to 
disrespect, but ran pretty well in this race as well. I don't know. He, it's not just like there's, this is a two-man show. You know, you've got Jakob, and then you've got a lot of other challenges to him. Whiteman probably deserves to be respect more than the rest of them since he actually beat Jakob in the world title, the world championship. And you've got the Kenyans. So you've got Timothy Chariot, who also has got back on the winning ways. He didn't win a single race in 2022. He's already got the big victory over Reynold Chariot in LA. So he showed he's not going gentle into that good night. One last thing about these 1500s. I mean, the the one the person who won the who ran the fastest and won by the most last week was Timothy Chariot. But I actually think that may be good for Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the sense of, to me, one of the biggest winners of last week was Jake Whiteman because Jared could now kick Jakob, but Whiteman's got 143 speed, and we know that he can run 329. So I know he's been hurt, but if he can get his fitness up. He's like, I outkicked him last year. Why can't I outkick him this year? Like, he's faster than Yared Nagus. Yared Nagus got pretty close to him in this one. So I think Whiteman was a big winner. But the fact that Chariot's in good shape could actually help Nagus. I mean, could help Ingebrigtsen in the sense of they can just push the pace together. He can let Chariot rabbit him like he did in the Olympics. Now, if I'm Chariot, I'm not doing that anymore. Well, Robert, did you see Did you see how that 1500 in LA played out? Because Raynal Chariot was the one who was doing all the pushing of the pace. And it's possible Reynold Chariot will be in the World Championship final and then it's just like, okay, it's one Chariot pushing the pace instead of the other. But Timothy, who likes to be at the front traditionally, hung back a little bit and then overhauled him. Yeah, it's interesting because it's just so hard to lead the whole damn thing. When we saw, in, in LA, we saw what happened in the Worlds last year and what we said in the Olympics. The person doing most of the leading didn't win the damn race. Now, and Rabat, the person doing the leading, did win the race. But they also had a rabbit for a while there. Well, that's the thing. Jakob always wins on the Diamond League when he has the pacer for the first 1,000. I mean, he won the Olympics, but the two races last year when he tried to go wire to wire, essentially, world indoors and world outdoors, he got run down in the final lap. All right. I want to go back to LA and talk about this woman's 5K. Because some interesting developments. I did not expect this race to play out the way it played out. Coming in, we had the two-time defending U.S. champion, Elise Cranny. And I'm like, okay, this is classic Bauman track club. They're just going to go out. They'll get the standard. Then she'll show up and do a thing at USA's. And then we had Carissa Schweizer, her teammate, added to the start list. I'm like, all right, Schweizer, she will be in this race as well. They'll... Go one, two, no big deal. Courtney Frerichs, I assume, should be pacing. Didn't play out like that at all. They tried to set the pace for the World Championship standard of 1457. They were not on pace through 3K, which is when Frerichs and Schweizer dropped out. They're at 904 at that point. So that's above 15 minute pace. Schweizer, I didn't even realize, was rabbiting, but because she hasn't raced since the World Championships. She had a cough injury. So she drops out, Frerichs drops out, and then Elise Cranny fell apart over the final mile, went 71, 72, 75, 77, 75 for her last five laps. She gets overhauled. Emily Lapari blows by her, wins it in 15.08. Cranny fades to fourth in 15.16. So if you're keeping track at home, we have Elise Cranny 
just ran 15-16, got smoked over the final few laps, couldn't get the World Championship standard. We've got Carissa Schweizer, who has not finished a race since last year's World Championships in July. And we've got Courtney Ferrix, who had ankle surgery in December, ran 4.18 for 1,500 in her only race of 2023 that she's finished. Robert, are you worried at all about any of these women? Because before the year, I would have said all of them were pretty much locks to make the U.S. team. What's your concern level right now on May 30th? Am I worried? Yes, when you can't run 50. First of all, how dumb is our sport? Cranny doesn't have a standard. I guess she probably would have the world ranking, but... She's 10th in the world ranking, according to the results page here. You need someone who ran 1433 last year to, to get the standard and was... 1459 at world like should we have it if you're top 10 in the world last year you're automatically in anyways i i just she'd run 407 earlier in the year so i kind of figured i don't know how to explain that can you explain that no because yeah her first race of the season it was a double she ran two flat for the 800 at brian clay which is a personal best in the middle of april and then the next day, she runs 407, which not close to her personal best, but after running an 800 PB the day before, it's all right. It's an early season meet, middle of April. I didn't think there was that much to worry about. But then in this race, they're setting it up for her to get the world championship standard. She can't run that pace. I mean, to put this in context, Robert, last year, 2022, she runs 30-14 for 10K in March at the 10. Now she can't even hold that pace for half the distance. So, I don't know. Her, her race at Milrose, she ran 837, but she got crushed by Alicia Monson and, Elise, and um, Caitlin Tui in that race. So, I don't know. I mean, I it's obviously it's too much to write her off, and, but this was a bad race. But, you know, when you're going for the stand, you're not, you're not even close to getting it. It's confusing to me because it, traditionally, Jerry Schumacher, what does he do? If you're not ready to go, he just won't have you run the race. So maybe I would take that as a sign of optimism. Something just went wrong. It was an off day for her as opposed to, oh, she's not fit right now. But not an encouraging result. I'm curious where Schweizer's at right now because I assume Schweizer would be trying to get the standard as well. She was pacing, clearly, but... You know, at some point, you're going to have to race this season as well. I'm the least worried about Frerichs, I would say. Um, 418, not an amazing 1500 for her, but the steeple making the team, I would say it's less competitive. We have a few women coming up, Chrissy Gear, Maddie Borman, that haven't been there in the past, but I, I feel the most confident about her. The other two, I don't know. TBD on when Schweizer races, but no, 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 John. I'm least worried about Elise Cranny. She showed some fitness. They weren't clearly they weren't pacing this. Instead of where she'd have to kick at the end to get the time, the rabbits dropped off. She picked up the pace for one lap, and then she fell apart the last three. But she did try to ratchet down the pace a little bit, then blew up. That happens. 418, that's horrible for Frerichs. She wasn't that good last year, and she had ankle surgery. There's a real concern about her fitness, John. She didn't even rabbit as long as Schweizer did in this one. 
I guess she's not as good a 5K runner, but Schweizer, okay. They've got, what, six weeks probably for USAs to get ready? I think they can get ready in that time, but I have the least concern for Cranny. Maybe she was focusing on speed earlier this year. I'm sort of surprised she doesn't have the endurance to do this. I mean, the two flat, what, like six weeks ago? That's pretty good. I mean, that's good for her. It's obviously a PB. I'm just sort of shocked she couldn't do this, but I have the least amount of concern for her of, of, the, of the group. She's fitter than everybody else right now. It's all confusing, but I'm not discounting a 3014 and a 3018 woman. Like their talent levels, I mean, their their accomplishments is like. I think they've earned the benefit of the doubt. They have shown when they're on their game, they're better than pretty much anyone else in America in the 5K. Jerry Schumacher has a very strong record of getting his athletes to perform well at USA's, put them on the team. If I had to get, get say right now, I probably would still say all three of them are on the world's team, but there's more doubt, I think, around them than there has been in previous years, that's for sure. Clearly, but the fact that they're able to all show up and at least you're seeing them run around the track six weeks out from USA's, they're probably going to make the team. Speaking of surprising results, you see a regionals were last weekend. Among the no notable developments, NCA record holder Elliot Kipsing of Alabama pulled that Kyle Merber won't be making the NCA fifteen hundred meter final. I have problems with this analogy, Robert. This is just admit it. This is just an excuse to take a pot shot at Kyle Merber. Because Elliot kept saying he's the, he's the NCAA record holder, but that was from last year. He hasn't been close to that shape this year. He didn't even make the SEC final. And Kyle Merber, in his defense, when he set the American collegiate record, he ran 335 in 2012. He did make it to NCAAs. He just didn't make the NCAA final. I made an accurate statement. Kyle Merber did not make the NCAA final. He was the American collegiate record holder. Kip saying didn't make it this year either. So, yeah, it was a pot shot. It, it, it just... You know, I was coaching. I think I was. What year was that when Merber did that, John? Was I still coaching? 2012. Yes. Yeah, I was directly coaching. That's why you were embarrassed. That was my last year. And so you got some good Schadenfreude out of that at the time, and you're just sort of latching onto that a decade later. Oh, I just, well, what were we known for at Cornell? We were known for peaking when it mattered most. If I had a guy that could run 332 or whatever Kyle ran, then I would have had him win the damn NCA. Well, you peaking when it, I guess, yeah, for. An Ivy League thing would be Heps would be when it mattered most, right? What was your nationals track record, well, Robert? How well did you guys do there? We had two young men win the national championship in the triple jump. Ah, yeah, I'm sure you're doing a lot of hands-on coaching, right? One of them didn't want to go in the bus to regionals, and I said, "Come on, Rayon, just you got to just go to regionals." He said, "No, man," he was all upset. Just get on the bus. So I and the assistant volunteer sprint coach got him on the bus to regionals. The rest is history. So he was on the podium at Nationals saying, oh, I wouldn't have been here without Robert Johnson. He's the guy. Go to give him credit, right? So sometimes people don't know, you know, they don't know what got them there. They don't appreciate. <laughs> we need to book him as a guest on the podcast. Okay, but the other stuff from NCAA Regionals, Robert. Well, I was going to talk about the big woman's name. That's not going to be there either, John. Well, there are a couple of big women's names. I would say Taylor Rowe, NCAA indoor champion in the 3K in 2022. She did not make it out of the prelims 
in the women's 5,000 out west. She was seventh in her heat. Then the other one, this was confusing to me at the start. Juliet Whitaker, the true freshman phenom from Stanford. She was the NCAA runner-up indoors. She anchored them to the DMR victory at NCAA indoors. Her better event is the 800. She's a good 1500 runner, but her better event is the 1500. It's the 800 where she's the high school record holder. Stanford entered her in the 15 at regionals after winning the 800 at Pac-12s, and then she didn't advance to nationals. So I thought it was curious. I don't know if its decision came from the coaching staff or if came from her or if they didn't want to have her racing Rasheem Willis again, her teammate, but the end result is she won't be at NCAAs in the 15. It's hard to comment on that one without knowing the, the dynamics. I mean, they had Willis run the 1500 at Pac-12s, whereas she didn't score. So she's the NCAA champion in the 800. She runs, and I kind of like running off events. It's it's kind of like I don't want to say boring, but just to be in the 800 every week, you know, like I, I can kind of see putting other events and maybe not even them wanting to have to race each other all the time. But then I also think. And I would do this sometimes too. I mean, I'm in the moron that had my best runner try to do the 800, 3000 double at conference one year. The coaches are always trying to, to get a little too cute and show how smart they are. But maybe she wanted to do it. And if she wanted to do it, you know, I, I think you, you let her do what she, that she wants to do. I, I, then people, I, how dare the, let the athletes run the show? But I don't know. I, I feel like unless like a team titles on the line, sometimes you need to build it. You know, even if you think it's a bad idea, you let the athlete do it, learn from the experience, et cetera. She's so a freshman. Maybe- yeah, it's fine. I don't think it's anything to burn the house down over. Uh, one other thing I found was very interesting though. The West region. Did you guys see how fast the second heat of the women's 1500 was? The top five women all ran 408. That's what Caitlin Tui's season's best is. Then you had 410 and 410 for Abby Goldstein, Tiana Lestraco in sixth and seventh. So I think a lot of us were just sort of thinking, okay, Caitlin Tui, she's going to be way fitter than everyone else. She'll show up. She'll just front run away from everyone in the 1500. I still think she probably does that. I mean, remember, she did run 1507 or 5K a few weeks ago, but. I don't know. When you've got four other women who've run 408, and then you've got a couple other 408 women, 408 women from the regular season. Oh, sorry. She ran 1503 at the track fest. I'll, I'll give Caitlin credit. She's clearly in amazing shape, but I feel like when you've got that many 408 w- women in the field, and if Tui's just going to be trying to front run it, which is, is that what we expect her to do? If that's how it happens feel like one of them might be able to sit on her and cause us some problems. So I don't know. How do you guys see this in the 1500? I don't want her to try to front run it. I want her to sit in the pack, work on her kick. So the the better the race, the more competitive the race, the better for me. I don't really care if she wins or loses. I just want to see it. Yeah. I mean, maybe she won't front run it, but I'm glad she's going to have some competition. Uh, it's going to be really exciting because the other thing that's interesting, Tui, Declared in the 15 and the 5K. She advanced in both of those events. And then Britton Wilson of Arkansas declared in the 400 and 400 hurdles. She advanced in both of those events as well. So those are going to be probably the two most exciting storylines of the entire meet is on that women's final day. Tui trying to do the 15 5K double and Britton Wilson trying to do the 400 400 hurdles double 
who do you guys think has a better chance of pulling it off? And I'll tell you the rest between them. Tui would have the 1500 final at 812 and the 5K final at 955. Wilson would have the 400 final at 902 and the 400 hurdles final just 25 minutes later at 927. Okay, no way, John. That's impossible. I disagree. I fully, I fully expect Britton Wilson to pull that off within 25 minutes. I, I think Britton Wilson has the better chance, and here's why, Weldon. Did you see the results at regionals? Because the schedule, I, I don't know. Okay, I don't know when the exact heats were, but Britton Wilson at the NCAA regionals, she was in heat two of the 400 meters, which started at 650. She ran 49.51 in that race, which is faster than any other collegiate woman has ever run. The 400 hurdles began at 725, which is 35 minutes later than that event. She was also in heat two. So I guess it's about 35 minutes difference. She ran 5371. She had the fastest qualifying time by more than two seconds. No one else in the NCAA has broken 55 this year. And she was able to run 53 35 minutes after her 400. So the gap is 10 minutes shorter, but I think it actually... Look, it's it's clearly not an ideal schedule, but the harder event to win is first because in that 400, she also had Rashidat Adeleke of Texas was right behind her. She ran 49-54 in her heat, different section. So she's got a more talented challenger in the 400, but I think if Britton Wilson runs 49-3 or 49-4, even that kind of effort, she'll be able to bounce back and run 53 or 54 in the 400 hurdles, which will be enough to win. So I think she wins both. I think she actually has a better chance to win both than Tui. Okay, pretend I never said anything. I mean, now that she's already done it once with 35 minutes, doing it in 25 clearly is feasible. She's just a phenomenal athlete. It's insane that she's even doing this. Like most athletes, you would say it's crazy that even attempt it. But not only is she running historically fast, but she's actually doubling up. It's just, I love to see it. It's going to be awesome. I'm glad she's going for, for the double, but she's just such a sensational runner. But if she was pro, right, she would pull out of both events the week of and save herself for Zurich. And that's usually how these things go. But All right, guys, it's time to bring in intern Alex into the show. He, we hired him because he's our baby nationals expert. I don't even know if Alex even knows what that term means, but... Alex, I guess I should ask you off the bat. Have you ever heard of the term baby nationals on Let's Run? And are you offended by it if you're aware of it? I've not, but I, I can assume what it is. A number of years ago, Weldon Johnson put a headline up when he was referring to the NCAA D3 results as baby nats. Some people were like, how dare you, Weldon? So for international viewers, the NCAA D3 is a level of competition where there are no scholarships. And... They had their nationals last week. I think in Rochester, New York, right? That's where up near Cornell, where I used to live. I'm gonna try to pull up the clip. I don't know. I guess Walden probably could add in this clip later, but anyways, near the end of the meet, as they were lining up for the men's five thousand meters, Ethan Gregg, who was one of the top seeds, was in lane one, he was gonna take it out. Everybody knew he was gonna take it out. And he stepped over the line. Only the officials say, everyone up. 
and they give a, you know, a green card and let him run. But this guy was disqualified from the meet. There was some booing in the crowd. The announcers went crazy. But Mr. Greg did not run the 5,000. And this comes on the heels of another disqualification at the high school ranks here in Maryland where Brody Buffington, literally all he did was put his hand up, his right hand up 10 yards from the finish in the 4 by one or 4 by 2 and he was thrown out of the meet. And that's the guy who was DQ'd indoors for celebrating too much? Correct. This is I ridiculous. Think that's a, well, that might have been a little bit different. He was told not to do it. That, what, I heard, I read in the newspaper that he was DQ'd for excessive celebration. I'm sorry, that's not excessive celebration. But let's get back to this D3 thing. Alex, what type of guy are you? Are you a rules follower? Some people on the message board, not very many are saying, the rules are the rules. He must be disqualified. I personally think that's absurd, but what do you think? I'm in agreement with you, Robert, definitely. Um, I mean, you talked about the guy that got DQ'd in the sprint event that put his hand up, but in the professional ranks, I forgot where it was, but for, in the 200 meters, Craig, uh, Fred Curley put his hand up like with 30 meters left and was celebrating um, before the line. And in... in uh, in Rabat this weekend, there was a lot of twitching in the 110-meter hurdles, and there were green cards given out twice. And this is a 5,000-meter race for Division Three Nationals. I don't think, I don't think Ethan Gregg deserved to be um, given a red card at all. And one thing that I really that drives me nuts about this is some people are saying, "Look, it's a false start. He false started." Well, first of all, there's a lot of people on the line. Someone like on the, he was in lane one. So someone on the outside of the, of the waterfall was still kind of moving. You could easily just, you know, do what they did in robot and act like it was crowd noise or whatever. But people are like, oh, they have no discretion. That's not true. Page from page 64 of the NSA manual. And I quote, for any reason, either before or after the word set, a member of the start team may cancel a start by directing all runners to stand up. After allowing the runners a brief time for adjustments, a new start shall be made. The starter must conform to the prescribed commands as set forth in the rules. So it says right there for any reason. It sounds like the reason can be, you know, hey, I don't want to throw a kid out in the 5,000. Everybody wants him to run, particularly at the D3 level. I don't, you know, people, it sounds like the, his fellow competitors really wanted him in there. And it, it reminded me of a post, you know, there's a big discussion, obviously, this on, on the forum. And my favorite post was from a guy writing under the name track officials. He says track officials tend to be guys in their late fifties and early sixties on a power trip. I think most of them actually genuinely hate the athletes. I wasn't sure about that. If that was too far because some of those track officials, like do you guys, John, I know, I know Weldon had a guy, Tommy Marr. I mean, he still does the Boston Marathon finish line. He was at all the meets. Everyone loved him. He was beloved. So there are some beloved track officials, but what percent are beloved and what percent are just like on a power chip? Like, Look, there, how- there is a number of track and field officials who I think you could describe as crusty old men who are have try to exert a little bit too much power. I don't think it's the majority. I don't think it's close to the majority, but they do exist. I think uh, the majority of track and field officials are actually people who love the sport and are signing up for a role that most young people don't. We need them to run track meets. 
And they have, a lot of them are volunteering or they're getting paid very little. They're taking away their weekend to do it. So I actually have a lot of respect for track athletes, track officials. I think they provide a valuable service. This guy is obviously in the wrong, but he's adhering to what he thinks the rules are. I mean, it's a full start. You can say, oh, there's some discretion in the rules, but it's also the guy broke, he stepped over the line. That said, you need to use common sense. There are times where if it's close enough, you just say, oh, it's the letter. I mean, I guess there are times you have to use judgment as an official, okay? Blindly adhering to every single letter of the law is not always what's best for the sport. In this case, it's very obvious, okay, he stepped over the line, but who is this serving? You know, I saw it, I was at the NCAA championships about a decade ago. There was a woman who full started in the 3,000 meters. She was thrown out. It was a full start, but she was crying afterwards. This was her chance to compete in the national stage. This is the national championship. These are young athletes in their early 20s. Some of them are teenagers. They've flown all the way out to ride in the most important race of the season, maybe one of the most important races of their life, and you're preventing them from doing it because of this silly, inconsequential mistake? Sorry, it's absurd. But the biggest thing here is we need to change the rule so that this stops happening. Would anyone disagree if we just change the rule to there are no more penalties for full starts above 400 meters? And I'm not saying that there isn't some penalty if, you know, if, if you're repeatedly just like screwing with the start of the race and stepping over the start line to screw up with everything, fine, throw them out. But there is no reason we should have people being disqualified automatically for one full start in 800 or a 1500 or a 5K or a 10K when there's really no advantage to be gained from full starting. Well, I think there is an advantage to be gained in some of these 800s and waterfall starts, which technically are against the rules in big meets, or 1500. But yeah, I, for the gist of it, yes, I would put it particularly for the distance events. Come on. Like, yeah, he didn't want to be clamped down on because he likes to front run. He's in lane one, but also is one of the top seeds. He shouldn't be in lane one in the first place. Like, to me, he should be given a preferred starting spot. So I thought it was absurd. John, this hits home for Robert. Freshman year of high school, there's like a two mile or something, and little Rojo stepped to the line, fall started before the gun went off. He was going to go home crying, but the head coach, Coach Jerry Reese, came up and said, don't worry, let him run. He's not going to do anything in this race anyway. And they let Rojo run. And he hasn't recovered from those comments ever. It's it's a very strong memory for me. I only ran track that one year because I got a stress fracture like a week or two later. I think it was the only 3,000. For some reason in Texas, we run 3,200s. But this was a 3,000, and I feel like I was on a bus trip to Houston. Like, how did I make the team to Houston? Because I'm pretty sure I got lapped in the race. But yes, it is traumatic for me. Alex, have you ever been thrown out of a race for false starting? No, I've not. I've not. I'm not decuted. Oh, I'm not false starting anyways. Okay, and what percent of the officials do you like at your meet? Oh, this might out him though. You can say a hundred percent if you want. If, if you're afraid that all the officials are listening, but on the fun volunteers helping out ratio to complete tyrant, what do you think the ratio is? Probably like eighty twenty, or maybe like ninety ten. I don't think they're tyrants, but and there's definitely some. It's definitely sometimes. Need, yeah, in a large meet, you need people following rules. We need standards. I don't want. Like, 
I almost feel like now we've gotten to the point in terms of these celebrations, like if you don't celebrate at the pro level, people are like, what's wrong with you? Like, I do get mad if someone doesn't like at least show some emotion, but I don't want high schoolers showboating, taunting people. But that what that high school kid from Maryland did, at least in this race, was not taunting. Now, if they specifically said because of what he did indoors, don't do anything, and then he puts his hand up just to be a prick, uh, then I can maybe see why you're trying to set an example, but who knows. No, I mean, come on. I've seen kids do that sort of high school thing all the time. When you win a state title, raising the baton up like that, that happened all the time at the Massachusetts high school meet when I was in high school, and I never saw a DQ for it. John, earlier you used the word crusty old men. You better be careful with that terminology because I think that could soon start applying to us. You know, John, you're our age. But apparently intern Alex, you're only 20, right, Alex? I'm 20, yeah. So let's, let's rank, rank them here. Hobbs Kessler, 20. Intern Alex, 20. Caitlin Tui, 21. Cole Hawker, only 21 still. About to turn 22. Jakob is only 22. This is a really interesting thought experiment. Ollie Hoare, John, over the hill, 26. But Jake Whiteman is 28. So you can figure it out at an early age, but I think Jake Whiteman is a good model for Ollie Hoare. Ollie Hoare is going to have to be smarter. His physical prime is in the past. He's going to have to figure out what works while training with Yarrod. Why do you say his physical prime is in the past? He ran 330 last year. What, what is your argument that he can't run 329 this year? I think just your peak. Jake Whiteman ran a PB last year at 27, which is, or sorry, at 28. Jake Whiteman is turning 29 this year. He was 28 when he won the world title and he ran a personal best in the final. Just peak raw physical fitness, I don't think is 28. Might be younger, but. It varies. For Jakob, it's younger because Jakob's been training like a pro when he was 12, but. For Ollie Hoare and Jake Whiteman, maybe it is 28. Maybe it is 27. Okay. But anyway, Robert doesn't know this because he doesn't know how to check the voicemail. Intern Alex already knows how to check the voicemail, but apparently he's very popular. His fans, we've already received a voicemail about Intern Alex. So I'm going to play that. Supporters Club uh, member and filmmaker Sanjay Walls. the best thing about this week's podcast was intern Alex. First of all, I run by intern Alex's parents' house at least five times a week out in Great Neck. And in the summers when he's back, I get to go on easy runs with the guy. I mean, first of all, he drops the average age of Let's Run employees by like 15 years. And I can tell you, like, I mean, even, even Jonathan Galt's podcast of choice is Coffee Club. Like every week he talks about the Coffee Club podcast and most of us old timers listen to that podcast just to, to try to feel young again. None of you guys really run and compete. Alex, I think, is the only one of your team that runs and competes and it would be great to hear more of them every week, you know, to get a little segment on like what the youth think these days about running and what's good for the sport. Wow. I think I should be offended by that voicemail, right? It does 100%. make sense. We started out as we were the young guys going to the meets, running with a singlet on, and people flocked to Let's Run. We were like Leo and Lex Young. People were like, oh, let's go to the cool website. Now we're like, oh, God. But how dare 
what was this guy's leaving the voicemail? He's really the person that needs to be on the on the on the podcast every week. We're going to kick Alex off. Alex, this is your last show. Is employee one point one Steve Soprano? Steve is a former runner of mine at Cornell. He is a father of two. Now he has not served in the military, but this guy is within seconds of his collegiate PB. What did he run the other day? I think he's. I think should we do a match race live? Alex versus Steve, pay per view. Steve probably should have run D three, but he ran D one. Alex runs D three. I think Steve takes Alex. And Steve, how old? How old is Steve, John? You know how old he is. He's like thirty. I think he's like thirty five or thirty six. Yeah, Alex. Okay. Over Steve what ran, What's your five thousand PB? Mine. Yeah, that's where that's where the race is. That's 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 Steve's best bet. Or maybe we have him meet in. No, I think I think Steve wins that handily. I think this needs to be like a fifteen hundred, right? Yeah, we've got a thirty-five out here. We just went like fifteen, fifteen. Wow! So, can you do that? You're gonna are you gonna raise the white flag? You can say I concede the five thousand to Steve. Sure, I can. I, I concede the five thousand to him. Okay, but you've run one fifty-nine. I don't, John Kellogg. What's Steve Soprano's eight hundred PB or what's his? What do you think he could run for eight hundred? Okay, John, be surprised if he could break two hundred four. You've run one fifty-nine. Fifteen hundred, it is. That's what we've got to do. Old timers, Steve versus young timer Alex. We. You guys are both New York State residents. We we pick a location like between upstate and Long Island. So that would be maybe we have to rent out Randall's Island for the weekend. Wow, I think Alex takes him at fifteen hundred. What can you run for fifteen hundred? Do you think? I don't know. My sixteen hundred personal best is four forty one. Oh no, no! I think Steve, John, what can Steve do for the mile? Oh, John. Yeah, John's saying four two seven. Well, anyways, tell tell Steve to sign up for the Brooklyn Road Mile first week in August. Wow do they have a do they have a non binary category? Steve's interested in making money in the non binary categories. <laughs> I don't know. Good answer. Good answer. See, he dodged that one. That was smart. And Robert, you better be careful as well because there's more on this voicemail alex is gonna expose how the sausage is made at let's run i'm super happy that he's your intern i was really really surprised in all the best ways to uh hear him come on the pod and thank you guys for hiring him and uh can't wait to get some like inside gossip from him about how let's run is really run when he and i go on our next run Thanks a lot for doing all your work, guys. Wait, I have one question for Alex. What's the logo of the shirt you're wearing right now? Is that a German national soccer team logo? No, it's Eintracht Frankfurt. Eintracht Frankfurt. Okay. I was going to ask because the intern we hired a couple summers ago, Carl Winter, was a fan of the German national soccer team, which arch enemies of my beloved England. Do you? Who do you root for internationally? I do actually root for Germany internationally. Weldon. So Weldon is out here to just, I feel like he's gaslighting me here. As soon as I hi, I'm hired for let's run.com, he says he's picking a premier league team. And I say anyone, but crystal palace. And of course, crystal palace is the team he settles on. And now two consecutive interns have been German fans of Germany, who is the team above all 
I root against as an England fan. So I don't know if you're just trying to go crazy on me or what. How do you end up supporting Germany, Alex? My father's of German descent. Any any consideration switching allegiances to supporting the U.S. given Germany's poor performance at the last two World Cups? It's been really bad for Germany the last all the major tournaments, even even the Euros. But no, I think in the <laughs> but I would not. I mean, I root for the U.S. just because. I'm American, but I definitely root for Germany over as my number one number one international team. John, that was a good job of distracting about Alex exposing the inner workings of Wet's Run. You never want to see how the sausage is made. It's never that impressive. It's actually disgusting. I feel like in the case of Let's Run, it's not disgusting. Well, apart from occasional Rojo segments that we may have to blurt out, it's not less disgusting than it's just takes way longer than it should. <laughs> especially with this podcast. But I don't know. Alex can share his take maybe when he see He saw us record last week. He's sitting on, in on this one. We, we, should we, I mean, Sanjay insulted us. Should we plug his film? He's a filmmaker, right, Alex? He made the, what's it called? 3100? 3100 Run and Become. An ultra running film. It's about that crazy race and I think it's Queens and they just run around the block for like months. I need to watch the film, but I think it's on Amazon. Sanjay was a former Supporters Club member. We're revoking his membership for that insulting voicemail. We say we want more voicemails. You know, he said, I appreciate what we do at the podcast, but he essentially called us crusty old men. So no, we didn't. You get, you got to grow thick as skin. I, I mean, I'm getting suspended because I'm quote, quote, unquote, disrespecting Paul Chalimo. No, guys, it's the internet. You run a website, like, I'm sure people have said a lot worse about you on Let's Run.com. So, no. Thank you for the voicemail, Sanjay. Glad to have you as a listener. All right, Robert, what else do you want to talk about before we wrap this thing up? I know we've got Florence to discuss. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? I mean, I, I kind of want to talk about this LA Grand Prix meet. We just had a major, it was supposed to be a major track and field meet in a major U.S. metropolitan area. We haven't said, was this a success or not? There are a few things I thought was pretty interesting. Well, can, yes. I, I, first of all, Ryan Krauser, can we, can we just, what he did is amazing to beat his own road record by like more than six inches or something. And to see, I just love how a guy who is the best that's ever been at something still wants to be even better and way better. Like the fact that he's tinkering with his own technique and how's this new slide is amazing. But in terms of the actual meat, this talk of is track and field going to be saved by Max Siegel by putting a meet in LA, that doesn't interest me. It's never interests me. We keep having people saying, if we do this, we do this, we're going to market the sport. It's been going on for 20 years. It's not going to happen. Like, let's just stop with it. This, this meet should be the proof positive that regular season track and field will never be popular in the sense of like the NFL, the games don't mean anything. You can't get away from that. You're going to always save yourself for the thing the the three, the three best women in the women's hundred don't even bother to show up for the final. The four best LA based track athletes don't even bother to run in the meet. Like that's end of story to me. What, what John, why would having a meet in LA save track and field? We had a meet, a diamond league meet, which is a much bigger meet than this in New York for like 10 years. And it didn't do a damn thing. 
So just because the Olympics are in LA, we're going to suddenly save track and field. Like that idea, that's such a stupid argument that I don't even feel the need to talk about it. Well, I don't think it's, it's not saying save track and field as a whole. It's what can we do to grow the sport, to make it more popular than it currently is. And I think one of those things is you have a major meet in a major American city where there are a lot of people. And I like the idea. I'm glad USATF tried this. Max Siegel said that the meat lost money and they're still committed to doing it next year. But one of the things, first of all, the attendance, I thought the attendance, they announced it as 7,200, which I thought was actually pretty good. But then Rich Perelman, the sports examiner, his newsletter, sounded, I think he was at the meet. He said there are actually only 4,500 fans there, which, you know, track field, I think, will often kind of inflate spectator numbers and, the home the home straight looked like the bleachers had were pretty full near the finish line, but I think the stadium also seats around ten, twelve thousand or something. Forty five hundred. I mean, it's not a disaster, but it's not a it, it's it's kind of average, I would say, in terms of what I was expecting for fans. But the the thing I thought Michael Johnson, as he usually does on Twitter, summed this up pretty well. He shared some thoughts on LA. He said. Few major matchups, few big names, athlete complaints, f- poor date planning. How does an organization plan for a meet to be a game changer, but instead end up with the meet actually being a perfect example of all the current problems? This is not easy, but it becomes harder when you make a big announcement about a game changer and you didn't change anything. And I think that to me is kind of my biggest takeaway is, Robert, you said this earlier, it kind of underlines what's already wrong with our sport. We did have some great performances. I love the 1500. The Ryan Krauser shot put was fantastic. You have Mondo DePontis in the pole vault. But there are two approaches you can kind of take with track and field. And we say sometimes if you're all talking about the stuff that's not happening at track, you're just trying to create a spectacle. Some people would say you're going too gimmicky. So a lot of people, the diehard track fans are saying, we need to build this around the matchups. We need to have the best athletes competing head-to-head that's what will drive track fans. That's what they have in other sports that makes them exciting. And I think this meet show why that's just so difficult to do. Because like you said, Robert, there's no incentive for athletes to go out there and risk any injury in a meet in May. That's not even a diamond league. So it's not paying 10,000 first place. That's just the way the sport is. And unless you totally overhaul how track and field is structured, that isn't going to change. Athletes are going to pull out if they even have the slightest hint that it might jeopardize their preparation for the world championships, which is the meat they get paid for the meat that their contracts are structured around. And that is going to be the case in 2024. It's going to be the case in 2025. It's always going to be in the case in this sport, unless the whole structure of it is changed. We need to stop over promising. There's not going to be a game changer. We need to use LA to try to grow the sport, but we're starting from a very low starting point. I'm looking here, 4,500, if that's the number. Two teams last year in the Women's Soccer League in the United States averaged less than that. Only two teams averaged less than that in attendance. So minor sports in the United States get more than this every single time out. We need to use LA Olympics to grow the sport. That's the same thing they said in London, and they've gotten rid of the track in the Olympic Stadium. We said the same thing last year. We're having worlds in the U.S. We have to use it to grow the sport. 
they they didn't like so I, wait but so, robert you don't want them to have meats in la it's it's just like a no-brainer it's going to be the most receptive place for a meat you want them just to shut up shop and like let's not have meats i mean robert like, like i'm not opposed to trying to have a meat in a major city but i actually think that a lot of the meats should actually maybe be held in small towns remember the main distance festival you you become someone had a, something what meat was popular this week wasn't there a meat somewhere and I'm like, no, it's not that track's popular. It's a festival. It's an event. It's like Preakness in Baltimore. One week in a year, everybody goes to the Preakness. And there's 100,000 people there. You just have an event. It's kind of like a, 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 the, the night of the 10,000 PBs. People aren't there for the actual races. They're there just to support that they're a track fan for the beer, for the fun summer activity. You have one event, maybe like in kind of a smaller town where it's a bigger deal. And it's just a festival. Everybody in New England... How many people showed up to the main distance carnival? No, the the thing with that is you need these events with history to anchor on it. Like track and field, you can't just... The, the 9 to 10,000 PBs is an example of a meet kind of springing out from nothing and becoming a big event, or at least in our world. But generally in track, that's pretty hard to do, to grow these things up. Like the best approach really is to go to a meet that already exists, something like the Penn Relays, where... You've already got some fans coming in for the high school action. It's a big meet with history. It's one of the few track meets that someone outside of the sport may have heard of. And you try to beef that up. And then you say, hey, this is actually going to be one of our tent pole events on the calendar. That's usually like in other sports, what are the, the Preakness and the Indy 500 and that sort of thing? What do they have in common? They're all 100 freaking years old. So if you have a 100-year track meet with some history and then you start putting some dollars behind it, maybe that's how you can meet one or two big events per year. Guess what, John? USA Track and Field did exactly that under Craig Mosbach. They beat off the pin relays. They made the USA of the World part of a big part of their thing, and they put it on national television. And then guess what did Max Siegel do one or two years ago? He stopped it because he's not going to get credit for that. He's moved it all to LA. So it's just like we have these ideas, and they don't work, and then someone tries something new because they want to get the credit for it, and they don't work. But a meet in the Los Angeles area with music was tried in Carson 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. I forgot how many years ago it failed. This one was more, I was pleasantly pleased with the thing. I'm not opposed to them trying things, but I just, it's like, okay, we're not suddenly going to get people just to show up. Right. No, I look, I think 4,500 for the first year of this meet, that's not a bad starting point. You run it back next year. Maybe the people who were there, did they have a good time? I think some of the experience, some of the meat they probably enjoyed, but I doubt they enjoyed having the three top women in the hundred, including Carrie Richardson, pull out and no one really realized it happening. Like that, that sucks. But yeah, you, I, I think this was a decent start, but there are also some of the way this, ways this meat was managed. I know there's some complaints from the athlete about athletes about sort of the lodging and transportation and that sort of thing. I do think USATF has oh to straighten gosh. it out or they need to outsource it to John. They were, given director. they were given free lift codes to take and take a ride from the airport to the hotel. If they can't figure out how to use a lift code, then they don't deserve. To well, I was told those lift codes weren't working properly, but anyway, yeah, no, the, the biggest thing though is we build this sport when you build sport around head to head matchups and then they don't, they don't materialize because any athlete at any point can just withdraw because they feel like it without penalty. The athletes are going to continue to do that. 
it's it makes it much more hard to market. If I was if I was in charge of the Prefontaine Classic and I was Nike and I own that meet, I would move it around the country. Maybe you have it in pre every other year or every four years, but then I would have cities bid. Who wants to hold it? We'll send our meet, the Nike Prefontaine Classic, to your hometown. And it's a big deal in some smaller town to have these people. Everybody shows up. They come out one year. Then you move it to another town the next year. And you have cities bidding like you do for the NFL teams. And you do that. And that's the big meet of the year. People know to support it. Blah, blah, blah. Anyways. Who's going to bid for it, Robert? We bid for U.S. Nationals every year, and they've been at they've been the NCAA's are going to be in Eugene pretty much every year until the end of time. The U.S. Nationals have been there three years in a row. Des Moines, Sacramento, and Eugene have been the only places that have hosted USA's in the last fifteen years. I don't think it costs three million. I don't think it costs three million dollars a year. So if they wanted to spend two million dollars of Max Eagle's salary on that every year, please stop. Oh my god, he's like a child, John. He's just like a child. Oh, he just keeps focusing on that, Robert. A million dollars isn't the problem with USA track and field. There's not a lot of interest in track and field in the United States. It's a problem, John. We used to have this thing called the Milrose Games. It was at Madison Square Garden. People quit going because it was boring. They quit entertaining fans. We have to put on entertaining products. But I think it's hard for anyone to get more than 5,000 fans out for a trap meet in America. That's reality. That's the starting point. 4,500, looking at that audience, I hope they had that many. But I th- could we have a meet in L.A. before the Olympics and get fill up that stadium? I think, of course, we can. Meet after the Olympics, fill up the stadium. Of course, we can. With the stars there, that's, w- that's what's going to be. Hey. You want to fill up a stadium? This is the way you would fill it up. You say, if you want a ticket to the Olympics, you've got to come to this meet this year. Now, the Olympics wouldn't want to do that. And you got to show up. You can't sell the ticket. You got to show up and support the meet for three or four years. And then people say, oh, it's supporting the rich because the people that can afford to go for four years also get to go to the Olympics. But that would be one way to do it. Look, enough of this. I want to give a shout out to someone. There's another great thread on Let's Run called Amazing High School State Meet Results Thread. And I think this should be an annual thread because it's impossible to follow the high school scenes. There's 50 states. You're going to miss big performances. But this way, if you go to the, you know, if you're big, if you live in Maryland and you go to the Maryland State Meet and you see something amazing, you you put it in this thread. So I made it, I called it 2023 edition. And there was some crazy stuff happening all over in high school. But I want to give a shout out to, to Tavon Underwood of Mead High School in Colorado. This guy, I've seen this happen on the women's side before. I've never seen it happen on the men's side. He almost won the 100, 200, 400, 800 in Colorado. 4A, second biggest comp, second biggest class, classification. 151 and 800, victory. 45, 36, 400, victory. 20.93, victory. And then he got second in the 100, 10.67. So pretty amazing. Someone pointed out Obia Moore, who what? Used to be the high school national record holder in the 400. He had similar PBs, 10-5-4, But those weren't all in the same meet. Those were his PBs. For this guy to run those times all in the same meet is kind of crazy. That's a, that's really impressive. I hope it happened. Has that ever, I bet that's happened in like North Dakota or something. Someone's won the one, two, four, and eight. I think Laura Raisler may have done that. She won something yeah. like 16 state titles. But that's really cool. Robert, I, I didn't see this thread. I love the idea. Can we give a shout out to 
Oregon sprinter Mia Brahe Peterson. Not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Did you guys see this? She's only a junior in high school. She ran 11 flat at the Oregon State meet at Haywood Field. Only two high school, US high schoolers have broken 10. Sorry, 11 in the women's 100. It's Candace Hill and Brianna Williams. Peterson's only a junior and she's running 11 flat. I also looked at a shot of the crowd. There might have been more fans in the stand for this meet than there will be at the US National Championships in July in Eugene. So I found that interesting, but shout out to Mia. That's terrific for a high school junior. Well, John, that's why the Texas relays gets fans. That's why the Drake relays gets fans. People go to watch their cousin race or whatever. It's not a, they have a rooting interest. It's not because they love track and field by, by itself, but people will go to track meets in America. And John, I'm glad you mentioned Mia. I won't try with her last name. Because I was late getting to a little barbecue after our Rabat Diamond League recap podcast, and I show up, and people there are talking about her. They're like, oh, did, did the girl break the record? And I was like, what? And I think she got written up in the New York Post like last week or something, so pe- local people had heard of her because she raced the boys. She raced in the boys' 100 meters, and it's pretty cool. She beat her prom date, but that generated generated random buzz. And but she's the real deal. I'm like, well, actually, when I first saw that, I thought it was some gimmick. But she's the real deal. She's an 11 second hundred meter runner. So glad they let these crusty old officials let that race happen to generate some buzz. And let's keep it going. Speaking of prom dates, I found this very, very interesting. We were talking about this before the show. We are talking about Newbury Park. I'm sure all the Zoomers will call me a crusty old man for being late to this, but I, I saw a picture on Aaron Solomon's Instagram. Looks like he went to prom with Natalie Cook. I was like, how do they even know each other? I mean, they must have met at some national meet or something. I thought that was very interesting, but looks like they have a fun time. Good for him. I mean, Natalie Cook's a freshman in college. I don't know how many guys, when they're a senior in high school, are having a freshman girl in college from out of state come to his town to go to prom with him. So good for him. Well, fans, I just said a funny joke, but Weldon won't let it be said on air. There's one last thing I want to talk about before we get out of here. There was a thread on the message board about, well, there was an article in Runner's World with Kara Goucher. They were recounting how in her book she talked about how she listed how much money she made various years, how much money Adam Goucher made. And I think Adam Goucher made like 180000 the first year or something. He had a good year, blah, blah, blah. And it said he used that money to pay off his student loans. I was like, why in the hell would Adam Goucher have student loans? This is the Foot Locker national champion. This is the best runner in all of high school America. When he goes to college, now some, some schools supposedly have like policies of no full rides, but that guy needs 99.9%. Like, give me a break. Why did he graduate with debt? Now, do you guys think that they lowballed him an offer? Well, I, this was discussed, I think, in running with the Buffaloes, is they just didn't have as much money to give to the cross-country team back then. Colorado wasn't, they were on the rise, but they hadn't become the power that they are now. It, it is shocking to me, though. He ha- he was in-state as well. So you're getting in-state tuition at a state school, plus, I would assume, a partial scholarship. But 
yeah, that was kind of crazy to me. I was like, oh, I forgot Adam Gouch had student debts. But I do think it's covered in running with the Buffaloes that they couldn't offer him a full ride. Okay. And I know that that was a big thing when I was coaching was that the scholarship didn't technically cover your total cost of attendance. And now they can actually give you a couple thousand dollars on top of that because just, you know, incidentals and whatnot. All right. Before we go, this is going to be our last episode before the next Diamond League, which is in Florence on Friday. After the show, after Florence, it'll be 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern on Friday. I assume we're going to do our now traditional post-Diamond League live show that will replace the Friday 15 this week. And the, the marquee event from a Let's Run.com perspective, we do have Fred Curley and Marcel Jacobs are on the start list for the 100. Who knows if they'll actually both run in this race. But the marquee event is the men's 5,000 meters. Here are some of the names. Muhammad Ahmed, Berahu Aragawi, Salomon Barrega, Telahun Bekele, Joshua Cheptegei, Grant Fisher, Luis Grijalva, Mo Katia, Yomif Kajelcha, Nicholas Kipkoria, Joe Klecker, Jacob Krop, Stuart McSwain, Thierry Ndikamuanayo, Samuel Tafera, Getnet Wale. This race might be more loaded than the World Championship final. It's absolutely fantastic. You've got a ton of medalists in there. I guess... Ingebrigtsen's not in it, so it's probably not as loaded. But so many stars in here. Robert, do you have a prediction for the winner? And secondary, what result from Grant Fisher would qualify you as not being worried about Grant Fisher in this race? So we always say, this is bad news for Grant Fisher. This is bad news for Grant Fisher. What result? by Grant Fisher would be bad news for Grant Fisher in this race. Hmm. If Gurma and Ingebrigtsen were in this race, I think my, the computer would explode. Like that would just be the most amazing 5,000 in history. I mean, if he wins it, then I'm very confident he's going to medal at worlds. God, what's a good result. So he's got to be chipped a guy. I mean, it's hard to say really like, what I want, what I want to see from Grant, I want to see him in the lead pack the entire way. Although I say that, and Ritzenheim was famous for coming from behind, and when he set his American record, and Ingebrigtsen when he ran twelve forty eight won that race last year, he fell behind. So I don't care if he falls behind in the middle because he's running an even pace. I want him contending for the win at the bell, in the lead group, not dropped. That's what I want to see. Whether he finishes the hell this field, there could be fifth or sixth. But you know, I don't want to see him running in sixth and then picking off and getting third, because you're going to add in Ingebrigtsen into the worlds and stuff like that. What about you guys? I think this thing's wide open because last year on the circuit, it was like every week there would be a new guy stepping up, and Dikamuanayo, who's now representing Spain, by the way, not Burundi. He won in Monaco, but then we had Crop winning in Brussels. We had Kip Korea winning the Diamond League final in Zurich. I feel like there are just so many guys who on their day could be the winner here. It just comes down to sort of like who has a good day. And I think Grant Fisher could be in that mix. Grant Fisher didn't end up winning, but you could argue he was one of the most consistent guys because he was always in the top two or three in those diamond leagues. So I don't know. I, I think a, 
anything in the top three, you'd have to be really happy with in this field. Top five, still like, okay, decently happy. After that, I mean, there's this really good run is probably going to finish sixth here, but yeah, I think anywhere from like, I could see Fisher finishing anywhere from like first to eighth. It just really comes down to who's in shape and who has a good day. I still can't believe Johnny ran 1246 last year. But if you do that, there's no reason to get dropped. I'm like Robert. He just needs to be up there to be competitive, see what happens. You could finish sixth. At the end of the day, I'm like, okay, you're fine. World is a long way from now. I like I like the fact, John, that all, all these guys, Grijalva, Ahmed, like, used to be Fisher. That crew was content to race over here and take their chances at Worlds. And now they're like, no, we're going where the best in the world compete. Doing some C-level meet in the U.S. doesn't do anything for their careers. So let's go see how we stack up, see how the chips fall. So that's great. I'm still up hoping that we'll see Marcel Jacobs in the 100. I still think the money is so good for him and Florence that he actually needs to run the race. So I think he shows up and runs. But if not, Fred Curley was damn entertaining and robot by himself. So who else was in the 100? There might not be any other money for anyone else if those two actually squaring off. But these other, from- these other guys want lanes, John. You know, I think some of these other guys want to take a shot. So it is the Diamond League. And we've got an update from Woody Kincaid, who I believe is in Europe. He said, but he's not confirmed for... Florence, yeah. So, I mean, we just read off that start list. It's pretty long, and there's a lot of really good guys in there who you could say probably should be in the field ahead of Kincaid. But maybe one of them scratches at the end and Kincaid can get in. Because there, I mean, all right, I'm looking at the people in here. There's not that many people you say should clearly not be in there ahead of Kincaid. I think we said Klecker... Kincaid's better than him this year, but Kleiker has a higher world ranking. Andreas Almgren of Sweden has run 13.01. I would put Kincaid in ahead of him. But most of these other guys are really impressive athletes. Kind of, It's tough to pull that many of them. I hope it works out and he's in the race because this should be one of the best races of the year. Yeah, he's in Florence. According to Internalix, updated us via Instagram. But also, John, do you see what the last meet? Excuse me. But also, John, do you see what the last event is in Florence? The women's fifteen hundred. Am I missing something here? My new number one rule is the best event should always be last. The men's hundred is the second to last event, and it is loaded. Even if Jacobs doesn't show up, essentially you have a rematch of what you had in Rabat. Omanyala is in there, Curly and Bramel, plus Simbine. So, Curly yeah, I, I don't know why. The, I mean, unless Faith Kipigon's taking a run at the world record, that would be the one thing that I would say merits that being lost. Kipigon is in there, Laura Muir is in there. You've got a few Americans, Sechard de Kleka, Jose Andrews, who obviously aren't going to be contending for the win. But if Kipigon's going off to the world record, I'm okay with them having this loss. Otherwise, it should be the... I mean, really, I mean, oh, come on. The hunt, no. If 
here's the thing. If I knew that Curly and Jacobs were running against each other for sure, that should be the final event. But we don't know that. So I, I can't totally blame them for not having that be lost. Agreed. But they should move it. If, if, if they both enter the meet, move it to last. Same thing. Like, There's going to be no saving grace for our sport. But we need to do it at every opportunity. Think, how do we promote this best? When the LA Grand Prix comes on TV, they really couldn't do this because the golf went long, but they should have immediately hype, overview the meet and hype up the women's 100 meters that Shakari Richardson's running. Now, fortunately, they didn't do that because she didn't end up running, end up running the final. But otherwise, like if you're a casual sports fan, you have like 20 seconds to catch their interest. Instead, they just usually start showing them like the 400-meter hurdles go off. Overview the meat, hype something up. All right. Well, I think that is going to do it for this week's episode. Check back on Friday, 4.10 p.m. Eastern. We will have our live Florence Diamond League breakdown. Hopefully, we've got some great 5K results to discuss there. The next week, a lot of the schedule next week, we have the Paris Diamond League, and we've got the NCAA Championships in Austin, Texas. I know I will be there. Well, then. You and Robert, Texas natives. Are either of you going to be making the trip? I want to be there, John. I want to go to, go to Cisco's, see my mom and dad. But my wife is the baby could come that week, so I can't really. I'm not. A, I can't be hours away. I, I believe Rojo and the whole family are going to be there, John. I don't think Rojo's going, and I think his wife and kid. They've they've never been to Texas together. COVID happened. I'm pretty sure the whole family hasn't been to Texas. So Rojo's coming home, people. That's that's great news for the Johnson family. I'm sure your parents will be happy to see him. And I hope they come out to the meet on Saturday night because between Caitlin Tui and Britton Wilson, they're going to get a chance to see two of the biggest stars in American track and field right now. So it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to eating some barbecue to go into Cisco's, a lot of great eateries and drinkeries in Austin. So it should be a fun trip. All right. See everybody Friday. Supporters Club show. Join today. Letterhorn.com slash subscribe.